We continue our sermon series this morning that we endeavored upon two months ago entitled God's Story, Our Story, where we look at all of the stories of the Bible, all of the themes and characters and storylines, and for some of us, all of the stories we might have grown up with as a child that might have seen on the surface as random stories that somehow don't seem to come together. But our goal is that as we study Genesis to Revelation, that we will see that all of the stories and characters and themes ultimately ultimately point to one story and one figure from Genesis to Revelation, one story of God's redemption poured out and seen through the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. We continue our series by looking at Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. It's the story of Noah and the flood. It's a story of new beginnings. Just to recap where we've been, we've been looking at the last four weeks at the corruption in the earth, the brokenness and the darkness in our world because of Genesis 3. And for the last two weeks, we've looked at the reality of the brokenness of our world in Genesis chapter 4. And then what happens in Genesis chapter 6 is we see the corruption and the darkness and the brokenness of our world. And God looks down upon the world and this is what he says. It was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. He saw the earth and he saw the corruption and he saw the brokenness and it eventually tells us in that passage that it caused God to grieve at what had happened. And then in chapter 7, God sets a family apart that although he will bring the flood and he will bring the destruction, he will set apart for himself a people with the head of that people, the head of that family being Noah. And in Genesis chapter 7, he commissions Noah to build an ark to build an ark for the pending flood. And then finally in Genesis chapter 8, the flood subsides. And that's where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 9. That's the Noah, after going through the 40 days and 40 nights of the flood, the flood has subsided, the destruction is over, and God has preserved Noah and his family for this purpose that we read about this morning. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered." Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God has made man in his own image." And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. 
Just as a side note there, we see once again in verses 1 and 7 the reiteration of the cultural mandate, the creation mandate. So we are confident that the cultural mandate still stands even though through the fall we see God reiterating this mandate again here in Genesis chapter 9 to be fruitful, to be multiplying and filling the earth. Verse 8, then God said to Noah and his sons with them, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the field with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again all flesh shall be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud. It shall be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of the flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I shall see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And on this fourth Sunday of Advent, the grass continues to wither and the flower continues to fade. But the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. Some have said that the story of Noah and the flood is maybe one of the most recognizable stories in all of the Bible. Well, it's pretty easy to understand because it's probably the go-to story for every children's pastor and every children's teacher uh, for the last 2,000 years. You can imagine that as you're studying, though, the story of Noah and the flood, it's hard to actually see it, though, as a childhood story when you think about God wiping out the entire earth. I mean, seems more likely this should be a made-for-TV movie or something when you read of the drastic measures that God goes to to get our attention and to purify the world Here in this story of Noah and the flood, God wipes out everything and you're left wondering, is there anything left behind? Is there anything? And there we see in Genesis 9, this passage that we just read, that God's mission is a mission of preservation. If there is one thing to take away from today's message, that it is in the midst of darkness, in the midst of destruction, in the midst of chaos, our God is a promise making promise keeping God that will always have a people for himself and the people that he has for himself here that will re-begin, re begin uh, renew this story of humanity to, will renew this story of God working out his mission on the earth after the destruction through the flood will be Noah and his family our God has a commitment to preserve. So what actually does he preserve here in the story of Genesis chapter 9? The first thing that we see God preserving here in the midst of destruction, in the midst of the flood, is he preserves the value of all human life. He preserves the value of all human life by, in verses 5 and 6, 
he gives us very strong language to how he sees humanity. He says things like in verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. If you remember week one when we studied Genesis chapter one, God gives us that foundational truth which forms our worldview that the sanctity of all human life, that the sacredness of humanity does not come from you and me. It does not come by what we have or what we don't have, but we all are children of God created in his image. And this is what fuels us in our mission here at Coral Ridge that we are able to say that we serve the least of these, that we serve the most vulnerable of our society because we believe without a shadow of a doubt that God has created all people in his image. And what God is doing here is he's reiterating and preserving the value of all human life. And that's why we fight for and stand with the most vulnerable of our society from the moment of conception to the moment of death, standing with them. I love what John Calvin said about the sanctity of human life. For as heady and intellectual of a theologian as he was in the 16th century, he said this, when you are confronted with the question, should you help your fellow neighbor, you should never ask the question, does he or she deserve it? You should first ask the question, what does God deserve? Because if they are truly created in the image of God, when you answer the question, what does God deserves, it clearly makes the answer simple of what my fellow brother and my sister deserve. You see, the doctrine of the image of God in all people serves as the basis for the mission of the people of God. And what God is doing here is he's reiterating that all humanity from this point forward that comes from the line of Noah is sacred and holy and set apart. And that's what fuels the mission of God and fuels the mission of the people of God. We see God preserving the value of all human life. All life is sacred because they have all been created in his image. But the second thing that we see preserved here is not only the value of all human life from the moment of conception to the moment of death, but we see here the preservation of the physical world. In verses 7 through 11, as I said, God reiterates the first mission and the first mandate that he gives Adam in the garden to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But then he makes a covenant with the earth in verse 11. And he says something so significant. He says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And here, and it's so important, verse 11 at the end, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Why is that so important? That God is on a mission, not only to preserve us, but also to preserve the physical world. You see, we often are faced with the question, should we serve and should we take time and should we pay attention to the physical needs of this world? Because after all, isn't the world going to hell in a handbasket? I mean, really, can we really consume ourselves? Shouldn't we just be concerned with us and our spiritual lives and our personal and private lives? And God says here in verse 11, I not only am concerned with the spiritual, but I'm also concerned with the physical. 
The reason we're able to partner with Habitat for Humanity and the Council of Homelessness and Avondale and to serve the least of these and Hope Women's Center and all of the various physical needs that we meet as a church is we, we believe that we are to attend to the things that matter to God. And God says, my physical world, it matters. So that therefore we are a church, as our vision says, that not only preaches the gospel, but demonstrates it as well. We are a gospel-centered, culture-shaping church that is not only concerned as the people of God with the spiritual, but also concerned with the physical because Jesus is not just Lord of the spiritual realm, but he is the Lord of the physical realm as well. That's why we believe in the Great Commission and the cultural mandate. That's why we proclaim the gospel in word and we demonstrate it in deed. You see, you don't have to understand end times by simply reading the book of Revelation. Genesis chapter 9 tells you how it'll all end. And it will not all end by God destroying everything. Therefore, the people of God should just turn their back on the physical needs of their community and of their world. But we should be engaged in what God is concerned with. Why? Because it will be the physical world that will serve as the setting for the new heavens and the new earth. We pray it every Sunday on earth as it is in heaven. And so the people of God should not just be concerned with their spiritual private lives, but should be concerned with how their faith expresses itself publicly in every arena, in every sphere of culture. Because when we serve the least of these, and when we serve our city and our community, we are giving people a taste of heaven and letting them know that the best is yet to come for those that belong to God. In fact, Romans chapter 8 says creation is groaning, longing for those that are in Christ to fully recognize and realize and experience their redemption so that the creation itself should experience redemption as well. Listen to me. Christmas, God coming in the flesh, screams to us that God is not only concerned with the spiritual, but also concerned with the physical. If God was not concerned with the physical, he wouldn't have bothered with sending his son to earth. God coming in the flesh in order to make all things new. That's why we seek the peace and prosperity of our city and of our communities. That's why we're engaged in our culture and in our neighborhoods. And if you were to study ancient cultures and philosophies and religions for the last 2,000 years, you would see imbalance at either extreme. You would see cultures and philosophies worshiping the physical realm, and you would see cultures and philosophies rejecting the cultural physical realm. But it is the biblical worldview that says, no, we don't worship creation, but we also don't reject it. The people of God long for all things to be made new. Amen? Amen. And lastly, God, here in Genesis chapter 9, not only preserves the value of all human life, he not only preserves the physical world as the eventual setting for the kingdom to come to earth on earth as it is in heaven, but lastly, and so important, he preserves a relationship with his people. As I said in the beginning, God will always have a people for himself. 
Noah responded by faith and it was credited to Noah as righteousness. And Noah was set apart in his day, set apart in his generation as a man of God. Him and his family were set apart as God's people. And this is what God does. In verse 12 through 16, God enters into a covenant relationship with his people. And he says, never again will my people be destroyed And then God does this, and it's so beautiful. He sets a bow in the clouds, and he says, this bow in the clouds will serve as a reminder for you, and it will serve as a reminder for me that I will always have a people, and my people will not perish, but my people will live forever. In one of the commentaries I was reading, it says that the the bow is not necessarily the the type of bow you're thinking of, right? We we think of the bow and we've translated it into some versions and some translations as the rainbow that we see in the when it when it storms and when it rains. But the the Hebrews had something much different in mind. They actually it's translated a war bow. Don't think archery lessons, think Braveheart. Think of a warrior bringing his bow to war, bow to battle. It's a war bow that would be used by a hunter, that would be used by a warrior. And God, the warrior, it tells us here in Genesis chapter 9, is setting his bow up. You see, the bow to the ancients was always a symbol of destruction and wrath. It was a symbol of hostility And God says, I set my bow up. And that symbol of the bow being set up in the clouds at rest is good news for you and me. Because God is saying, my hostility is over between me and you. That never again will my people be destroyed. I'm hanging up the bow just as the hunter hangs up the trophy on his wall. The war bow of destruction and justice is put at rest. But notice where the bow is pointing. The bow is no longer pointing in its resting position down here to earth with the fear that it might be taken up again. But it's pointed up to the heavens You see, God has a dilemma, and it's a big one. We just read in chapter 9 that God has to have a day of reckoning because of the brokenness of our world. God has to have a day of reckoning because of what has happened here on the earth. But at the same time, it says that the bow of destruction and wrath is set up in the clouds, never to be taken up again. And every time God sees it, he'll be reminded of his commitment to always have a relationship with us. How does this problem get solved? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. You see, the good news at Christmas is that God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world. Instead of us feeling the brunt of the bow, instead of us feeling the judgment of God, Jesus took it on himself so that the bow would never be pointed back here towards earth, but it would be pointed up to the heavens where the Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, would take on the judgment and the wrath and the condemnation of God. He would get the arrows so that we would forever, through faith in him, Have his favor forever. Jesus, the light of the world, comes into the darkness 
and he takes on the darkness. Jesus, the hope of Christmas, comes into the world and he takes on the storm so that in the worst storm of his life as he's hanging on the cross, God turns away so that we, by faith, would never experience God turning his face away from us. Brothers and sisters, someone got the bow, and it wasn't us. And the good news of Christmas is that Jesus came down to suffer for us, to suffer in our place, so that we might have the hope of everlasting life. It was Detroit, 1987. A Northwest flight took off at 8.20 at night, but it never really took off. Shortly after takeoff, plummeled shortly to the ground. 154 passengers and only one survived. The survivor was a little four-year-old girl by the name of Cecilia Chacon. How in the world, out of 154 passengers, did one little four-year-old girl survive? Well, she was the only witness. So they asked her, what happened? She said, as the plane was heading towards the ground, my mother took off her seatbelt and laid on top of me and saved my life. That is fierce love. That is fierce love. A mother laying down her life for her child. But brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ this morning, you should know this because that is the fierce love of God that has been demonstrated towards you in the person of Jesus Christ. The hope of Christmas, the lost are found and the perishing are rescued. If you know Jesus this morning and hope in God and the Messiah that has come into the world of Jesus Christ, if that is the only hope for the world that is lost and dying, then I want to ask you, for those that know Christ this morning, what are you doing about it? How in the world does not every single person know about this Jesus if this is truly the hope of the world? We want to make it hard in South Florida for people to not know about Jesus and to not know about the gift of eternal life that comes through him and him alone. If this is truly the hope and the only hope of the world, what we celebrate at Christmas, then what in the world are we doing about it as a church? But if you don't know Jesus this morning, and you are facing and experiencing the storm of life, if you are experiencing the chaos of this world and searching endlessly for purpose and truth and meaning and forgiveness, then this Christmas season, I have one Christmas wish for you. I want you to be found, and I want you to be rescued. There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ, the one who came into the world to seek and to save the lost. You see, the greatest storm is not out there, but it's inside of yourself. And the only one who can cure the darkness and the sin and the brokenness of the storm of your life is the person of Jesus Christ. Would you be found by him this Christmas? Would you be rescued by him? Would you allow him to come in to change your life? 
You see, in Genesis 6, it says that the only thing God saw was wickedness. But the promise of Genesis 9 is, for all those that are in Christ, it says the only thing God sees is the bow. The bow and the Jesus given for you. He took the brunt of the bow so that forever you could be a child of God.